today's scripture reading can be found in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. It can be found on page 984 of the Black Hardback Bibles in your pew. Page 984, Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. And I am one of the pastors here. And if if someone hasn't welcomed you already, let me welcome you and say, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, If you're new to us or um, or if you just need a refresher, we regularly preach through books of the Bible. And we kind of do that verse by verse by verse by verse. So we're just marching through the book of Colossians. And if you're just joining us, we're in chapter 2, verse 20. Um, by way of kind of uh, giving you a broader picture of what's going on in Colossians, later in chapter 3, Paul's going to walk through content, and this is just a few verses away. He's going he's to walk through content that believers should be concerned about. Okay, he's going to name what we should put on as Christians. That's the language that he uses. And right now, today, he's in a section of text that functions as a kind of logical hinge on which that repositioning turns. Now, we shouldn't think that theology and practice are detached, okay? We should not think of them as disconnected categories of the Christian life because Paul has shown us just the opposite, He's woven deep theology right into our attitudes and our postures and our actions and our understanding, our gratitude and even just the maturity that we have that corresponds with Christian practice is rife with deep theological reality. Listen to this scholar. It's, it's not, quote, it's not really helpful to divide Paul's thought here into doctrine and ethics. A good deal of what he has already said has had to do with behavior, and a good deal that is to come is substantially doctrinal. The string of imperatives in chapter 3 hardly proves that a transition has occurred since the basic mood is also imperative. In both sections, the commands are undergirded with doctrinal teaching. He isn't transitioning from heady theology down into practice. He isn't doing that kind of a transition, but he is developing or turning the corner in his argument. He's going to be speaking directly in chapter 3 to what we're doing offensively. That makes sense. He's been speaking about defense so far, what we allow to influence us, what we allow to impact us, the pressures that come on us and try to get us to uh, trust and depend on other things besides Christ. He's been speaking about our defense, and later in chapter 3, he's going to begin talking about our 
our offense, right? Do this, put on this, act this way. So while we've been focusing on prohibitions that are linked to the overbearing requirements of these false teachers, next week we'll move forward. But in our text today, Paul's bringing a conclusion to his interaction with the false teachers. He's bringing a conclusion to the arguments and the positions that they've, they've uh, expressed, and he is dismantling the kind of wobbly structures that they've tried to build. He's dismantling legalism, as we've seen. He's dismantling asceticism. He's been breaking down the configuration of bad arguments and practices, and he's been disassembling their positions and their framework. And as he breaks down what they've built, he says in layman's terms, nope, nope, don't listen to that. Don't think that way. Rip this down, move it over here, put it up here. Knock these walls down. Get rid of them. None of this structure is sturdy. None of this thinking is sound. None of these rules or regulations will do for you what these deceivers say that they'll do. In fact, they'll actually do just the opposite. Their focus on shadows has them missing the real thing. Their false humility makes them proud. And their obsession with visions and angels and spiritual experiences has done nothing to diminish the power of the flesh in their lives. It's actually evoked and unleashed the flesh in their lives. So, before he erects better walls, which is what he's about to do in chapter 3, before he puts in new windows and a more solid framework, before he begins to build correctly, he pours a reinforced concrete foundation. Now, That's over saying it because in truth, the foundation is already there. These are believers that he's talking to. Christ is their foundation, whether they're paying attention to it or not, okay? But sometimes we need help. We need help to build our practices on that foundation because we neglect or we forget the foundation that's already been laid. For Christians, that's what scriptures like this do for us. They don't establish the foundation again because it's already there, but they do remind you. They say, remember the substance. Remember the sturdy rock of Christ. Don't act like you aren't established in him. Don't live like you're not rooted in him. Don't live like you're not built up only in him and nowhere else. Remember, use your mind to increase increase your trust and deepen your trust in Christ. So, he he lays again a theological underpinning for what he wants to say next. And he does this by explaining to them and to us what's in the foundation. In both verses 220, chapter 2, verse 20, and then again in chapter 3, verse 1, the sentence begins with the word if. And this if is not the if of conditional speculation. Paul's not saying something like, mm, I don't know, I don't know, maybe if you could, maybe if you could um, 
die with Christ, or maybe if you could reestablish your own foundation, then maybe you'd be free from asceticism, or maybe you'd be free from legalism. It's not the if of speculation. It's the if of a logical, conditional phrase. A good way to think of it, or a good translation for this if, is the word since. Since he fully expects us to understand that phrase that we have died with Christ as being true already. Since, since you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why would you act and behave like you didn't die to them? For scholars like Douglas Moo, verses 20 to 23 function as a hortatory climax. He says, he says they function as a hortatory climax of Paul's discussion of the false teaching. And that's just a fancy word for saying this is the tip and the conclusive kind of section for his exhortations that he's been giving so far. Okay? He's climbed to the top of the roller coaster. Right? He's ratcheted up to the type, top of the mountain that he's climbing, and right now we're kind of tipping over before we tip down and start rolling through all the rest of the nuances and implications and practical outworkings of all this foundation that he's built up so far. So one author says that Paul grounds his critique in Christology, and so that's what we want to do today. That's what I want to talk about. I want to walk through four movements in our time this morning. And before we do that, let me just pray for us. So would you all bow your heads with me and pray before we move any further? Father, you are good. You're good. And you're being good to us right now. You're being good to me right now. I don't, I don't know how people came in this morning, Lord, but our circumstances don't determine your character. Thank you that you're good to us. Would you be good to us this morning through convicting us of sin, opening our eyes to weakness and immaturity and frailty and foolishness, build up the weary, strengthen the faith of the weak, uh, fill and bolster hope in people this morning, I ask, in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm just going to walk through four quick movements. They are, number one, in Christ, the dead you died. Number two, in Christ, you are made alive. Number three, in Christ, you're free from appearances and in Christ, you're free from empty strategies. So first, in Christ, the dead you died. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? Let's look back at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 quickly. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised, who raised him from the dead. And you, 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and he put those same rulers and authorities to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The first thing to point out is that once you weren't in Christ. That fact has to be grasped before you can apply the text. And and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's strange, but in, in a real way, if you're in Christ, there was a you that has to die. A spiritually dead you. And I want to take the opportunity in this verse to remind us that the Bible doesn't get squishy here. It doesn't get slippery when it comes to this reality. Outside of Christ, all are dead in their sins. Their hearts are hard and cold and unable to please God. Before you knew the Lord, you were his enemy. And you could not do anything to become his friend. You could not save yourself. You could not resuscitate yourself. You were dead. Dead, dead. Spiritually dead. The worst kind of dead. And in that dead state, you were guided and subject to darkness and the elemental spirits of the world. You lived while you were dead under the rulership of the prince of the power of the air. You were controlled by your flesh, unable to change anything about yourself. There's no fixing it. And I want us to feel that this morning. Christ did not only come into the world so that you could live and be a part of a family like this. He first came into the world so that you could die. So that you could die. Ephesians lays this out in a very similar way the book of Ephesians does. And most scholars argue that the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians were written during the same time period. These scholars date the books around 62 AD during the time of Paul's imprisonment in Rome. The same imprisonment that you can read about at the end of the book of Acts. But whether or not you agree that these books were written at the same time, the vast parallels and similarities that Ephesians has with the book of Colossians, those realities are undeniable. And to strengthen our understanding this morning of what Paul's getting at in the first sentence of verse 20, I'm going to read from Ephesians 2 verses 1 through, 1 through 3. If you want to turn there with me, feel free. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a picture we should have in our mind when we think of ourselves before we met Jesus. We weren't just ignorant, okay? Education wasn't enough. We weren't just untrained or undisciplined. We weren't sincere or following Christ or looking for Jesus. We were following someone 
we walked, we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air as disobedient children of wrath, submitting our bodies and our mind to sinful passions, the sinful passions of our flesh, and submitting to the sinful desires of our bodies. We were the following dead, ruled by our passions and our lusts, and that person had to die. That person had to be buried with Christ. That's an inescapable fact of the gospel. We have to understand that and grasp that. That's what the waters of baptism from verse 12 are getting at. When verse 12 from chapter 2 says that we were buried with him in baptism, that is the biblical picture of the dead in trespasses you dying for good. For good. And it was that dead you that was ruled by these elemental spirits of the world. It was beholden to them. It was oriented by them. It was alive to them. That's what drives spiritually dead people. Sin, Satan, the flesh, the world, and dark spiritual forces. That's what we follow if we aren't following Christ. Second, but Christ didn't only, didn't only come so that the dead you could die. He came so that you could live. And that's what baptism symbolizes. Because of our union with Christ, we die in our union with his death. And we're raised to walk in newness of life in union with his resurrection. Now, that's not fully complete now. We get to taste it now, but it will be fully incomplete in the final day, at the final resurrection, where spiritual and bodily resurrection are together forever. And Paul's going to explain what it means for your behavior next week. But this week, we have to see the dynamic of what's changed. What's changed? Paul's going to say you've been raised with Christ, and that means act this way, which is in accord with that truth. But just like he's been speaking defensively about don't let this thing influence you, don't let this thing impact you, don't operate by these rules or let them beguile you or disqualify you, this kind of defensive posture, the reason that's warranted is because you are dead to those. And then you're alive to these new things he's going to get into in verse 3. Those are the things you live to. Those are the things you listen to. Those are the things you're oriented to. Those are the ways that you structure and think about your behavior. You've been raised with Christ. So act this way, which is in accord with the truth. And first, in order to put a cap, a cap on, these, on, the, on interacting with this false teaching, he wants them to remember that they died already, already. And specifically, with lots of emphasis, you died to all the things that the false teachers are imposing on you. Those are the things you're dead to. You are dead to them. And to get the thrust of this, I want us to turn to Romans Because in Romans, Paul's trying to hammer something into their heads, and he's trying to hammer it all the way down into their hearts. You see, once you were alive to legalism, and you were alive to asceticism and self-righteousness, you were alive to sensuality, and you were alive to the mind of the flesh, but you aren't anymore. It's just like if you were married to someone and they died, you would have zero obligations to that person. 
Zero. You're freed from that reality completely. You see, once you had not died with Christ and you were alive to the elemental principles of the world, Romans 7, in summary, Romans 7, uh, Paul's arguing that the law no longer has the same power in our lives the way it once did. And he's trying to get that to sink in by illustrating it through the obligations of marriage. When he says in Romans 7, verses 2, 4, and 6, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. But now... But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So in the same way that you were once alive to the elemental spirits of the world, you aren't anymore. You're alive to Christ. And Christ, when he died and rose, he overcame all those powers and all those rulers. And this is the kicker. You're united to him. So, so did you. So why do you act like they still have power over you? This is crucial. Listening to false teachers in your life is the same thing as listening to a dead spouse. Listening to these false teachers and living by their requirements is acting, is acting that way. It's acting like you're alive to those elemental spirits of the world. It's acting like Christ didn't overcome everything and you aren't united to him, both in death and in his resurrection from the dead. In Christ, you're made alive. You're not alive to legalism. You're not alive to asceticism. You're not alive to arrogance or pride or self-righteousness. Living by the rules and regulations and living by man-made religion is living in a way that's phony and fictitious and useless because it can't even do for you what it claims to do for you. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Has an appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And number three, in Christ, you're free from living to keep up appearances. You're free from trying to display well. You're free from trying to impress others or living by the judgments of others. We've seen some of this already, so let's only drill down into what we haven't said yet. Paul, uh, Paul's made it plain. Don't let them beguile you. Don't let them captivate you. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. And don't let them do it because if you're, if you're living, trying to measure up to their standards, their requirements, their pressures, their appearances, then you're not living like you're alive to Christ. In Christ, you're free from tricks. You're free from smoke and mirrors. You see, As sinners, we're tempted, we're inclined to perform for other people. And it gets worse because we're we're inclined to perform for other people in order to perform for ourselves and gain some sort of false assurances. We put on airs and we perform so that others can see us so that we can feel better. 
We wouldn't say it out loud, but we say to ourselves, I know God loves me because I read my Bible. Or I know God loves me because I go to church every Sunday and I wash my hands before I eat and I keep my nose clean. But in Christ, you're free from deceiving others and you're free from deceiving yourself with optical illusions. Let me speak uh, gently to the type A's in this room this morning. You can never make God love you more. Ever. You can never make him love you anymore. And in this moment, if there's something that flares up in you and you don't like that, that's okay. Praise God for shining a light on it. Right? Because he already loves you more than you could ever fathom or understand or grasp. He already loves you with this love that he has for his own son. We use spiritual misdirection to get others to believe that we meet their standards. We kowtow to pressures to fit in or pressures to be seen as godly or maybe just like the in crowd to feel useful for ourselves or just to feel like a good person. And we pour our energies into those efforts and they're just useless. They're useless against the flesh. Douglas Moo points out in his commentary that false appearances with rules and regulations are empty for at least three reasons. One, the rules that other people impose are temporal. They're fleeting. They perish with the use. So you can't impress God with things that are temporal. Number two, they come from man and not from God. And number three, keeping up with appearances can't bring real spiritual transformation from the inside out. The rules that you follow to placate judgmental people in your life, those are perishing. They're perishing. Rules about food and drink and holy days will end. They aren't lasting. They perish with use. They're fleeting. The New Testament reveals the true depths of the Old Testament and the rules about food and drink point to purity that Christ purchases for you. The rules and precepts that count are the ones that come from God, not the ones that come from self-made religion. Man-made precepts are harsh and controlling and full of arrogance and pride. They push others down to get ahead. They pretend a kind of piety or they display a version of morality, but they are hollow and truthfully, they're actually in rebellion to Christ. Self-made religion says, I don't need Jesus to die for my sins. I can figure this out on my own without a savior. And that posture or attitude might feel and look really humble, or it might look really pious from the outside, but it flat out denies the need for a savior. So it's, it's arrogant. In the end, Paul completely rejects asceticism. He rejects self-made religion and what he calls severity to the body because it's useless and harmful. It can't even do what these false teachers claim. We think we can improve our relationship with God by buying him off and punishing our bodies. 
But our relationship with God changes when our hearts change, not when our diets change. And, and better news, his relationship to us, if we're in Christ, never changes. Never. And truthfully, that bugs us sometimes. It bugs us. And not because we're humble, it's because we're arrogant. We don't want it to be true because part of our sinful nature doesn't want to change. Doesn't want to change. That's why Galatians 5 says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. Your flesh the reigning or the, the remaining kind of corruption in your body that's struggling to control you. It wants a list. It wants religiosity. It wants moralism. It wants to fight against the new heart in you, the new spirit that, that, that believers have in Christ. Asceticism is a diversion tactic from your flesh. Self-righteous moralism is a diversion tactic for your flesh to get you to live like you're still alive to the elemental spirits of the world and you're not. You're not. Like one author says, their religious aim to serve God and bridle the flesh only succeeded in serving the flesh and in unleashing its power. But you're free from appearances. You're free. And lastly, in Christ, you're free from empty strategies. The strategies of these false teachers are empty. We've already seen that the false humility isn't false in its degree. It's false in its entire direction. False humility doesn't miss the mark of full humility. It denies the truth and brings forth arrogance and pride in our lives. This kind of awe shucks mentality. It's distracting. The tactic doesn't miss the mark of full humility. It actually denies, denies true humility altogether. It does the opposite of what it claims. And Paul also says plainly here, he tells us all the stuff, all the rules, all the regulations, all the legalism and asceticism is of no value when it comes to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that statement kind of, kind of assumes that this is how these false teachers were packaging their product. Right? Something along the lines of, are you looking, are you looking to fight against the flesh? Well, just buy this book with these five easy steps. Or keep these four rules. Or eat this and don't eat that. Or let me tell you about this experience I had. Let me tell you about these visions. Let me tell you about these angels. If you want to fight against the flesh, this is what you need to buy. Like a, like a late night infomercial. And just like those infomercials, these salesmen overpromise and underdeliver. Now, the word for flesh is used in a number of different ways in the Bible. It can mean just your physical flesh. It can mean just your biological body. It can mean, and it can also mean anything that we do without depending on the Holy Spirit. We can do gross things in the flesh, and we can do good things in the flesh. Paul called confidence in all of his accomplishments, he called everything that he had achieved in his life 
confidence in the flesh. And we see also in the scriptures vicious acts of wickedness also being named as works of the flesh. So I want to think about flesh as it's being used here, and I want to turn to Galatians 5 to do that. What are the works of the flesh that the false teachers can't do anything about? Well, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, we see a list of just some of the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. I'll stop there for just a second. Then in other, other translations, it also says manifest. That has impact on me thinking the works of the flesh are everywhere. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And all these works of the flesh don't always look like works of the flesh. Like I already said, you might do things that look good, but be motivated by jealousy, flesh. You might do things that look humble to everybody else, but it's actually motivated by your pride, which is the flesh. I might, I might do things that look servant-hearted and be motivated by vain glory, flesh. We might do things that look pious, but are motivated by rivalries with other people in this church. And that's our flesh. The flesh is sneaky. And it's anything done in our power for our glory. And self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body can do diddly to help you fight against your flesh. Envy can't be eliminated with legalism. Jealousy can't be put to death by rules and regulations. Fits of anger can't be uprooted by mindfulness and meditation. Strife can't be quelled by punishing your body. Idolatry can't be killed by obsessing about spiritual experiences. Conceit can't be crucified in your own strength, which is what the false teachers are promoting, which is also why it's so insidious. It's why it's so powerful, destructive, and tempting. Because what they're playing to is the temptation that all of us have to do it our own way and do it in our own strength. They're playing to the temptation of the flesh to live the Christian life in your own strength. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to gratify the desires of the flesh anymore. We can do a bunch of things in our lives to impress other people. We can do things that look wise. We can check all the boxes to feel better about ourselves, but it will have zero help in stopping the indulgence of our flesh. The spirit of the living God leads us. And as he leads us, he produces in you from the inside out 
fruits, fruits of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this author. Afflicting the body or demanding of oneself practices that the Bible nowhere endorses may make one look uniquely committed to God and on one's way to defeating temptation and conquering the impulses of the flesh. But it is an illusion, an illusion. And in Christ, brothers and sister, sisters, you are free from illusions. You're free from empty strategies to look like something special to other people. You're free from their assessment and their judgment. In fact, you don't have to live alive to the pressure to fit in or be liked because living like that is living like you're still alive to the world and you're not. You're not. You're not. This word indulgence in this instance, has a clear connotation of eating until you're full. And the flesh is hungry. Hungry. And hypocrisy and self-righteousness and rules don't do anything to stop it. In fact, all they do is feed it. So you're free from the weight of those false Strategies. You're free to live by the Spirit. And that means you're free to love one another. You're free to have sincere joy. You're free to be patient, free to show kindness, free to be faithful and gentle and self-controlled. And against those things, there is no law. Christ died so that the dead you could die. And he's raised so that you could be raised to newness of life. In him, you're free from faking it and trying to fool everybody around you. And you're free from beating yourself up with empty strategies that will never achieve what you desire or long for. For those of you in this morning, for those of you in the room this morning that feel that, and are burdened and grown, grown to be set free from the impulses of your flesh. I want to say, I want some solidarity in this room and say, hey, you're in good company. If you groan about remaining sin in your life, if you groan about the impulses of the flesh in your life and you long to be set free and you long to be led by the Spirit, you're in good company. Paul says in Romans 8, we groan inwardly. Those of us, like you and me, who have the first fruits of the Spirit already, we're the kind of people that still groan, still I know we groan as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. So the appeal this morning is for us to not settle for religiosity. Don't get comfortable with a form of rule keeping that isn't true freedom. Don't live like you're still alive to the world. Don't try to look good to God or to other people by keeping the right regulations that impress everybody around you. Whether what you eat or what you drink 
or what disciplines you practice, they in themselves are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, arrogance and pride and self-righteousness that come from these misguided strategies are all just food for the flesh. They keep it alive, but make no provision for the flesh. Don't throw it scraps. Now, I don't want to I don't I don't want to discourage anybody in this room. I want to do the opposite of that. I want to I want to encourage people. So, if you find yourself in this space and you're you're noticing things in your life that you're trusting in that's that's not Christ, don't quit. Don't just sit down and quit. Approach him and repent. Don't give up, but give in to the Spirit of God. Don't lose hope, but do lose hope in all of your empty strategies. It's by living in true humility and not in arrogant, false humility. Not through submitting to regulations. Christ has done all the work for you. Christ has done the work and he bids us to come to him. And all we have to bring to him is our desperation. All you have to bring to him, it's not an exchange. You give him what you have and that's nothing. And then he gives you everything you need, which is everything. He bids you to come to him and all you have to bring is, is, is your need. That's it. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in rule keeping. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Christ afresh again this morning and bring your need to the table. We take communion at this church every single week to help us proclaim to one another and proclaim to the watching world Christ's death until he comes again. And so in just a little bit, we're going to take communion here. And the way we do that is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups have wine in them and the glassware has juice. There'll be two stations in front of this podium, one in the balcony and then one further over here to my left that is gluten-free and single serve. And then also, every single week, we have prayer ministers who love to serve our church by praying for people in this room who need prayer. And they will be underneath the stained glass window further to my left who would love to pray for anybody in this room about anything. And they'll be over there while we're taking communion. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be able to come forward. But before I do that, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So if you're a believer this morning, what I mean by that is if you are placing all of your faith in Jesus Christ for your right standing 
in, in your relationship with God and you're putting zero hope on anything that you could bring to the equation, then you're a Christian. And we invite you to come forward and take communion. And if you're not a Christian in this room, let me just say explicitly, man, we are glad. Glad you're here. I hope that we can be hospitable. I hope that we can be a place where you can engage questions or ideas or thoughts. I hope that we welcome you because you are welcome in this place. But if you're, if you're not a Christian, I invite you to stay in your seats and maybe pray for the first time. Maybe wrestle with some of the claims that I've made from the front of the room this morning. And for the rest of us, um, come forward and eat. And, while, and when you eat, eat in faith. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to take communion. So would you all bow your heads with me as we pray? Spirit of the living God, I ask that you would shine light, shine light on our hearts and souls in places that we didn't know were dark, in places that we didn't know we had places in parts of our heart that we did not know we were depending on other things. I find this morning, Lord, places, places that I am pressured, pressured by things outside that are extra and extraneous and don't determine my standing with you. And I repent of that. Again, help me sink down uh, the truth, the truth that I'm yours, I'm yours, not judged, or no one else can qualify me. I'm yours and yours alone. Fill this room, fill the people in this room with the confidence that they are sons and daughters of the living God. Strengthen their faith, bolster hope in their hearts. And for the weary or the downtrodden or the despairing, man, would you uh, pick them up? Would you pick them up, I ask, in the name of Jesus? Amen. Come down and eat and uh, yeah, eat in faith whenever you're ready.